What's up, everyone? It's 2 p.m. on a Wednesday afternoon, which means you're tuning in to Cannabis Legalization News. I'm producer Lauren, and today we're going to be speaking with Scott Roberts from Scott Roberts Law out of Michigan. Uh, applications start on November 1st, which is in two days. So we're going to be talking about Michigan's cannabis landscape in a few minutes. But first, we do have to get into a little bit of cannabis legalization news. So what's going on in the news this week, Miggy and Tom? They basically decided to take a huge dump on the emerging uh, hemp industry. And by they, I mean, Sonny Purdue and the boys over at the USDA. Um, well, I mean, I mean, uh, bring up my screen so I can share it real quick. And uh, application window is the only way to go really on that. There you go. Do that and hit share. And this is going to be our guest. So do stay tuned to him. But this came out yesterday. It's 160 pages. And the big thing that you can always do now because it's the future, you just hit command F and then you can find something. And that's not incubator. What you really need to look for is total THC in this. And uh, it appears eight times in the uh, the new uh, hemp bill that we have. The thing about that is it's going to be uh, uh, really, really strange in the sense that they that's not what it says. Like, you know, the, the statute doesn't say shit about total THC. It says stuff about... Um, THC nine, uh, right? Delta nine. Yeah, Delta nine, right? It's supposed to say stuff about Delta nine, and then uh, if you, uh, I don't know. I'm trying to also manage the. Uh, I should leave Lauren to produce the show and just talk, uh, but so it, that's not what the statute says. So like you know, I really quickly hopped on the line and then I contacted Rod Kite, and so hopefully Rod, he said he's going to come back on, but now we have to wait for him uh, to get in touch with us because they put out like five different pieces over at his. Uh, law firm, I believe it's you know the Kite Law Firm, uh, Cannabis Law, something like that, uh, and they publish all the time. So if you try to find a hemp lawyer, and especially if you're on the East Coast, you're going to find Rod Kite, and we're going to have him here to talk about this 161 pages. The real two sticking points that look like it might totally obliterate the or, or just royal the, the CBD hemp market is the total THC as opposed to just the Delta nine levels, which is beyond the text, the plain meaning law, the statutory language. And also, you know who gets to test the uh, crop, Miggy? Uh, you talking about the labs? Oh, no, it has to be uh, DEA registered. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and the DEA has to test it. I mean, talk about that's not that's going to just ruin the crop because the DA will be like, oh, no, we haven't gotten back to it yet. Sorry. Hey, Sorry. so how many pages is that? 161. And the term total THC appears eight times. Dude, that that 161 pages alone tells you why you need a lawyer or and why we can't no, have nice things. Well, it, it, I understand like the highly regulated industry. It's like if you own an airline, you should probably have a lawyer. If you own a cannabis company, you also probably need a lawyer. But uh, you know where you can find one? And we have to give a shout out at the top of the show because we got the shirts. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's uh, the Chicago Normal. And so they were, they, so we got those shirts. I'll be sending you that one in the mail. I got one for Lauren as well. Uh, so remember, it's there. And those people are great. They're, they're really helping out a lot of the social equity applicants, especially in the Chicagoland area. But I'm not so sure about this incubator stuff. You've been hearing about these incubators? No. Uh, you're talking about uh, for like the cannabis incubators? Yeah, man, the cannabis incubators over here in Illinois. And then I'm going to just go ahead and share the screen uh, one more time. And so the incubators, this is in the part of the statute, which, of course, is the uh, the uh, dispensing organization. So you go into the dispensing organizations, Article 15, and then you can you can very quickly scan anything by using control find. And you're going to have the incubator program only appears three times and it comes into like whether they want to A, B, or C. How much money are these companies going to pay the state? Or 
are the going to participate in this incubator program. And so if you want your first license, you can do an incubator. And then this one's for your second license because you know how they're doing that, right? Um, you heard you heard about how Illinois is doing their first 110 dispensaries? No, well, it's random, right? Uh, um, no, no, like there's 55 medical dispensaries, so they get it and they get this option for another one. So that's like 110. What so these incubators? Because uh, I mean, I, I know there's a bunch of them that exist. As far as like uh, for business purposes, we have one up here. Uh, there's a large company from uh, California, Turingo, I think it's called. Tur Tur Anyways, uh, they have a place that I visited one time. That's probably about five businesses, all edibles that were mm -hmm. in based out of this one little building. Uh, and I and I think they get a percentage of the. Uh, course the company's rights and whatnot is that the same thing going on then in oh you know it probably is because i mean they gave them like options to like pay money or they could do this incubator thing and this incubator thing allows them to have this wonderful amount of advertising that they're doing especially in goodwill in the community so people are going to be more likely to buy cresco weed right it's yeah. like oh yeah because they helped and then uh then they do lock you out of the industry a certain amount like you can't only hold 10 licenses but you have to understand it's not like the 10 dispensaries that are there uh, can not sell Cresco weed. So the more dispensaries that they help get into the door, uh, you know, you're just creating more goodwill. And I, I, I get these calls from people that say that they're in this uh, this incubator program and I look and they say everything's free. And I'm like, it makes no sense. How can everything be free? And then yeah. you read more in the statute. I'm just like, man, I'm glad that it's there, but be careful about that, man. So the incubator program for this is actually from the state? Yeah, it's directly in the state themselves, and it's uh, wow. what you need to do. It's what you need to do to, well, if you don't want to pay, it's one of the ways that you can go about getting your first and second uh, cannabis retail licenses. So it's, wow. it's big, but then if you understand, like, okay, there's 100 and, well, yeah, there would be 110 of those incubators then, because there's 55 current operating medical licenses, and you double that, you get 110, and there's only 75 licenses that are available this next year. So right there, maybe every single one of the licenses will be one of these incubators. But uh, yeah, that barrier, that's the barrier that I always talk about, though. I mean, I think that's great. Uh, so are equity applicants a big part of that then, too? Huge part of it. I mean, that's that's really what it's all about. It's all about the equity applicants. But then if they're going in thinking that everything is free and it's just going to be given to them oh. uh, and, and they 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 undercapitalize because of that. So they don't raise enough money and then suddenly they're caught. And then these they've made these deals, though, with these big capitalized firms. Can they just buy them out? Is it going to be taking just is it just going to be a foil to give the big players what they wanted? You know, that's the thing. I, I, you know, if I had a chance to, to get in the Washington industry, like if there was a state program that because like we said before, the weed sells itself. Right. right. This is not uh, I mean, as a young kid, dude, I, I, I was a pharmacist. I happened to meet uh an ends to a mean and help a lot of people as far as uh, uh supply and demand goes right and, and i would wouldn't mind being a gardener if i could just have my own little garden and do a thing to sell my weed but uh that was not that did not happen here and no. yeah, i mean even if i were to give the state 10 percent of my ownership i i'd be willing to do that just for uh, a business to be my own boss well, you're not going to be your own boss. That's the thing. I mean, like you were getting partners and you were getting um, investors. So like when you have an investor, just like when you go down to the bank, you have somebody that you owe and and you have to make sure that they understand the operations. And that's one of the things that, you know, people kind of gloss over uh, how their company is going to function. And then not only that, 
how much understanding and appreciation they're going to give to like how their company is supposed to be operating. And so these these applications that people are going to be delivering are huge. And you should have an understanding of what that is. I mean, it takes a lot of work to review all your policy. I mean, is are the people that are applying uh, for these licenses, will they have read their application? What do you think? Oh, probably not. Guaranteed not. But uh, that's that's hilarious then, because these people are because they're going to sign it and they're going to I'm sure in those those signatures going to be like, I mean, you didn't read it. Uh, and and all those things that are in there, those 500 pages, those are all promises you're making to the state. And if you win, it's conditional. Well, and that's the thing, right? This is legalization, right? You have a lawyer representation. You have rights. You have uh, uh, pretty much just rights. You know, when it was medical here in Washington, like I said before, uh, you got a job with a friend that you knew somebody and they paid you 10, 15, 20 bucks an hour because you're good at trimming. But there's no medical. There was no uh, overtime. There's no, uh, you know, there's no contract. And, I, you know, as Americans, I think we live by that. Right. Like as a business for business. But that's it. I mean, like, yeah, we're if you look at America, America uh, is a contract that governs itself. And that's one of the reasons why we have corporations. Again, there are more contracts that govern themselves. But most of the people aren't reading what they do. And so uh, that becomes a big problem when your job is to know what you've represented to the state. And that is a condition of your license so that you know what your license entails in its day to day operations. So if I was to apply for this application and I wanted to get representation, what kind of lawyer would I get being that there's so many of y'all? You know, I think that is a great question for our guest today, Scott. Hi, guys. Hey, Scott. Thanks for joining us, man. Happy to be on. Cool. Can you introduce yourself a bit? Yeah. So my name is Scott Roberts. I'm an attorney out of Detroit. Uh, I have a cannabis business law firm, uh, Scott Roberts Law. And uh, we help cannabis businesses uh, here in Michigan with their applications, with their contract work, and uh, kind of generally helping them comply with the law. Hmm. So uh, one question that I have for you. Now, do your clients read their whole application? Because that was one of the things I was just asking Miggy. And I was like, you know, I bet Scott would know that. Some of them do. Some of them don't. Um, it kind of depends, you know, we have certain clients that will go over every single word on an application because they want to make sure it's perfect. And then we have some clients that's just like, you know, get it done and, uh, get the license and then we'll, uh, we'll figure it out from there. Get the license and we'll figure it out from there. Do you guys find that the internet has made it harder for your job? Cause now everybody's a lawyer and doctor. <laughs> Um, there, there's what is that old joke? Oh, there's two jobs everyone thinks they can do: being a stand-up comedian and being a lawyer. And yeah. uh, there's a lot of free resources out there. Um, so people a lot of times will think they know the answer to a question. And a lot of times, what happens is this is here in Michigan. It's a constantly, constantly evolving area of law, and laws will, or you know, the implementation of laws will change without really any notice. It just kind of MRA, or which is the Michigan regulatory agency that governs marijuana, they um, they sometimes just change their reading on things. And unless you're actively involved in it, you don't even know. So, you know, there's a lot of information on the web, but if it's more than a year or two old, there's yeah. a good chance it's no longer up to date. Yeah, just like 
Yesterday, 161 new pages of federal regulations regarding what the meaning of hemp is. Yeah, for, for hemp, that's uh, funny because we, we were writing a lot of articles on like CBD hemp last year. And we had this thing where every time we wrote an article, a week or two later, something would happen and the article would be out of date. And that happened like a good three times in a row. Um, you know, we wrote an article and then the state of Michigan released guidance and then that changed it. And then we wrote another article and then all of a sudden the 2018 farm bill passes. Yep. Uh, and it just kept on happening and happening. Um, and it just kind of reflects the fact that this is such a fast moving area of law, whether it's, you know, hemp or cannabis. Do you guys think this new 160 pages, which it's not official yet, right? This is they're still going to have an input time. Uh, That's right. Or the drafts. Remember, yeah. they do the draft. You get the comment. They do the revisions. There's a final. Because once it becomes final, do you think there'll be like a bottleneck? Because right now, people Wild West are just going nuts. They're growing. They're doing the extracts. They're embedding. They're selling on Amazon or wherever the fuck they sell on. Once this actual 160 pages, do you think everybody's going to stop for a second? and start reviewing or right now they're probably proactively going at it aren't they probably just preparing their business if you're smart about it oh i told my clients to punt and then i'm kind of glad i did because like right now with what happened there's some seed whose price is going to go through the roof there's some seed whose price is going to go through the floor some farms are going to go bust some farms are going to make a great bit of coin and so uh it, man i don't know scott what do you think is going to happen um, well, you know, with uh, the hemp market, you kind of have two types of players. You have the fly-by-night players, and then you have kind of more the kind of formal businesses. So I, I think, you know, the, the more kind of businessy guys, I think they're going to finally have an advantage over the fly-by-night guys because they're going to be the ones who actually pay attention to this and make sure they structure their businesses in a way that is compliant and works within the rules going forward. And I think the fly-by-night guys um, are gonna you know, make some mistakes and then they might get into a lot of trouble. There's a lot of that in the uh, cannabis industry, this fly-by-night stuff. Uh, you know, as we were talking earlier, uh, how people are easily offended uh, about just like subtle things, right? Cause you guys- I can't believe you would say that, Miggy. I know. I, uh, no, excuse so me, I'm sitting down. Activists yeah. don't get offended by anything or, or weird at all or anything like that. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, Scott, your guys' website's business first, right? Cannabis business first. It's not you were the first in cannabis business. You're just about the business of cannabis. Right. Yeah. And we, we put that there because we wanted to differentiate ourselves from kind of the criminal lawyers who are working in the, you know, cannabis business. And, you know, we, we come from all uh, kind of corporate law or real estate background. So that was kind of a way to, to show people that, you know, we're business first lawyers. We, we know businesses and we represented businesses well before the cannabis industry, as opposed to someone who kind of comes from a, a criminal background and maybe doesn't know their way around a, a purchase agreement or an asset purchase or something like that uh, compared to, say, a corporate lawyer who's been doing it all their career. When it comes to cannabis business, would that, like we were talking earlier about the uh, the Illinois uh, contract, would you be someone I'd want to come to then for, say, hey, could you go over this contract before I get involved in it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, contract review, drafting, negotiation, that's um, 
you know, a big part of almost any corporate attorney's uh, yeah. practice. And, yeah. you know, the way we consider ourselves, we really consider ourselves as corporate cannabis attorneys, mm-hmm. not just cannabis attorneys, because, you know, cannabis attorney can mean a lot of different things. There's a lot of people calling themselves cannabis attorneys and they really are, you know, basically cannabis DUI attorneys or cannabis possession attorneys. And that's, that's a whole different area of law from what we do. Right. You know, if I was to start practicing that, I'm sure I'd be pretty horrible because I have no clue what I'm doing. Uh, but with the corporate stuff, that's what I've been doing the last nine years of my life. So, you know, I'm a lot more familiar with that and feel a lot more comfortable, you know, working in those yeah. sort of matters. That's that's what I've uh, one of the things that I've kind of like noticed and I've been a little bit surprised on is that I haven't gotten more of the people that have been offered contracts by somebody else asking me to review it because these people are forming these corporate uh, unions and each person that is getting involved to it should be individually represented so that somebody has gone through that particular contract to how their rights will be affected. And then there's the rights of the company, you know, so each person who comprises that company can have their own lawyer so that they really understand it. And there's that. I just can't believe that more people have been like, hey, can you read this? Somebody offered that to me. I'm not sure if that's coming in the future, but we'll see. Yeah, you'd be surprised how few people actually do that. Um, And, you know, if it's someone you're an investor, usually the investor will have their own attorney because they have money. Right. Um, But, you know, sometimes you'll have like three or four people in your office and you talk through all the issues and, you know, you draft it for the company. But you have to make sure they know, you know, I'm not representing you guys. I'm representing the company you just formed. That's right. And then important distinction. Yeah. And I I put that in the contracts, you know, the uh, independent counsel clause and just like, look, guys, you're saying that you did this. You're saying that you had the opportunity to go get your own lawyer. So I don't want to hear nothing. Like if this blows up in your face later, somebody could have explained this to you. Yeah, I put that in my uh, my operating agreements, where it's like everyone has been advised to uh, to seek outside counsel. And it doesn't make any sense. All right. We're talking about a cannabis dispensary. These are million dollar operations. Aren't they? Yeah, I mean, a lot of them are selling for four or five million dollars. I've seen them like going for nine ish over in in Illinois. Um, And one of the reasons for that may be explained on this chart right here that let me let me pop up um, real quick. You see, like, you know, the number of adult use cannabis retail stores per hundred thousand residents. And if I can zoom in a bit on that. Is that a little bit better, maybe? Uh, So you can then see it's Oregon at the top, Colorado uh, and then Washington State. And then Illinois at max, Nevada, California. I'm a, it's too bad that they don't have um, Michigan's data on there. Uh, we don't have adult use yet. Um, how does that work? I see people advertising that they have it. So what does that mean? And explain to us where where is Michigan cannabis? Yeah, so we have a fairly well-developed medical licensed program. And we're trying, kind of in the process right now of transitioning a lot of that to uh, the recreational system, which is kind of a parallel system that is very similar, but there are some you know, differences as far as license types. So on the recreational side, you know, they're gonna start accepting state licenses in two days. Um, and then that's gonna be a 90 day process at least. 
So, and then they also have to get a municipal license or some sort of municipal approval. Most likely there may be an exception to that. We'll, we'll see. So, um, you know, for the rec side, we're probably not going to start seeing recreational dispensaries. My guess would be maybe March or April of next year. I mean, you know, technically they could be open by January, February. I just don't see it happening because it, it never really happens as quickly as people originally want it to or think it will. It seems like there's always delays, you know, whenever there's so they, they're all on burn rate right now. Like they're all just burning through cash right now in, in Michigan. Well, you know, we, you know, we have a very robust medical program with hundreds of thousands of patients. We have the most robust medical program pretty much in the entire country. So, so they can sell that really kind of feeds most of the Michigan market. Um, you know, we probably have a medical program and I'm maybe making this up, but you know, our utilization of medical is probably close to some states utilization on rec where, you know, California is like the actual legal market is actually a, a minority share of the actual total market. Right. Um, but in, in Michigan, because we have more of a developed medical program and it's also very easy to get a medical card that, uh, you have, you know, hundreds of thousands of people with medical cards compared to a state like Illinois, where I think you guys have like 70,000. Uh, it's starting to explode now that they've opened up the amount of conditions. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to ask is, uh, the adult use license holders that are getting ready to open in March, uh, can they currently sell in the medical channels or does their license not allow for that? Well, no one has an adult use license. Um, I'll just be very clear on that. There is no one here in the state of Michigan with an adult use license. But there are a lot of people with medical licenses. And, you know, we have a rule with the medical and rec kind of similar to Colorado, where you can kind of have both in the same facility. So what you're seeing is we have all these medical dispensaries, growers, processors, and they're all going to be transitioning over to rec. So they have their medical license, but no one has a rec license yet in Michigan. As a matter of fact, November 1st is they're going to start accepting applications. So no one's even applied for one yet. So with those applications, uh, they're not going to automatically just say, okay, if you're medical, now you can turn over. So that's what Oregon did. They said, okay, if you're medical, now you can be recreational. Um, are they going to prioritize and say, okay, since you've been in the industry, since you've been doing this for a while? Yes. So, you know, the recreational applications, you can, can kind of divide them into two groups. Uh, one of them is the one where you actually have to first be in the medical program first. Mm. So if you're a, a larger grower, what we call processors, I think you call them infusers in Illinois. No, uh, no, I made that we up. We don't have, we don't, processors may one day be infusers, but infusers simply buy the extract and put it into gummies and something. That's okay. it. Only the uh, growers or the craft growers can take the flour and put it into rosin or something. Okay. Um, and then, you know, also the, the provisioning centers, which is what we call dispensaries. For all those license types, you have to first have the medical license and then you still have to apply for RAC, but it's a, uh, you know, probably a relatively easy process and you just have to make sure your municipality is on board with it and then you can get the rec license but then there's a group of licenses where you don't have to first have the medical license because oh. you know those medical licenses didn't exist the big one being the micro business license but also what we call the designated consumption uh, license which is kind of like a cannabis lounge or a coffee shop Ooh, that'd be exciting 
And yeah, about- when do those come out? And then who is who's regulating that? Is that the state or is that the municipality? Um, it's mostly regulated by the state, but the municipality does have to approve kind of the specific locations with respect to like the events and the lounges. You know, I, I think your guys is in Michigan, and it'd be a surprise to most, but has a great and old cannabis culture, you know, which I think hash helped bash. your guys' market. Yeah, Hash Bash, John Sinclair, who has a cafe still there now. And does yeah, he, is he, is he like on the Hash Bash float? Is there a, is there a parade for Hash Bash yet? I haven't been to Hash Bash in a while. <laughs> I used to go when I was a lot younger, but it, it's it's been a while since I've been to Hash Bash. So you are a consumer. Are you a patient as well? Uh, yes, I am a patient. Right on. What are you uh, treating it for? Um, oh, putting me on the spot. Um, uh, just put harshing. Or a, harshing or mellow. Health yeah. reason. How about health. That? Yeah. 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 I, I, like my thing's a back. Uh, I have a documented bad back. And so clearly I think, you know, the shame you can't just put case of the Mondays for your reason to have a case a of the Mondays. Yeah. Hey, that's, that's no, thing, yeah, you have to have, uh, you know, you can use pain and you can use intermittent pain. And that's kind of the big grab bag that everyone can you use to. depression is depression yet a recognized thing, or do you still have to go to a Zoloft then? Cause like once weed starts taking off Zoloft, goodbye pharmaceutical industry. No, you can't do uh, depression or insomnia, which is, you which know, ridiculous. CBN, right? Uses you know? I use it for. I just, you know, I have another uh, approved medical use, but insomnia is actually, and I, I think that's the best use for it, at least for me. Well, even PTSD is not recognized in all states. So mm-hmm. there's a various uh, on each state what your, um, what they allow for medical, you know. Yep. But I think that it's interesting that you just described something fundamentally different than Illinois' law. So that's another wonderful Captain Cuckoo Bananas of this, because when I'm talking to some of my uh, possible clients, when I'm just consulting with somebody first before I've you know seen if I can figure out how to work with them as their lawyer, um, a lot of them will ask, well, I want to get in the industry. And I will say, all right, well, maybe Illinois is not the state for you because of these barriers to entry. Uh, maybe you should try Michigan. Can What's your likelihood of success if you want to get into the cannabis industry and you're in Michigan? I mean, if you have the money, you can do it. Um, you know, we don't, we don't limit it the way Illinois limits it, where we're only issuing a certain amount of state. What's adequately capitalized for the money? Let's talk about this money. Yeah, <laughs> it's, um, you know, depending on your situation and, you know, depending on the license type, you know, you're going to need some money or a lot of money. And in Michigan, like the big cost is usually the real estate because we kind of have things a little different in that, you know, it's generally it's pretty limited on the municipal level. So there's, you know, a set amount of property that would qualify for a cannabis use. And sometimes, you know, a municipality will limit the amount of licenses for a specific use in that municipality. So that actually kind of creates a property bottleneck. And we're seeing these properties, uh, the price go through the roof. And that is one of the big costs people have to face is uh, properties. And, you know, we're working with some people now with some leasing opportunities because we've kind of seen this. This is a huge barrier to entry and doesn't necessarily have to be. But, you know, there's not a lot of people leasing um, a lot of because they're afraid if they lease to a cannabis use, their mortgage is going to get called, um, which a lot of them. What do you mean by their mortgage is going to get called? 
So, you know, a lot of these mortgages will say, you know, you have to have, um, you know, you have to be in compliance with state and federal law. Right. We all know marijuana. Well, think about it. Where's the where's that money for those mortgages usually coming from? Especially for residents. Like FHA and all those. FHA, it's federal money. You're going to take Uncle Sugar's money. You're going to play by his rules. And, um, (laughs) you know, that happened here in Washington. Like, that's how they got. They went after people like in the early days of medical uh, landlords would get letters, you know, uh, you know, you need to get this person out or close that business under your rooftop or else we're going to come after you. Hmm. And, and I saw many people had to close doors. They're like, yeah, the lawyer just said or the, the landlord said he got uh, you know, a letter and we can't do any more business. It's a very scary and gray uh, area for this whole for you guys in Michigan, uh, Scott, are do they break up the market as far as here in Washington? You can't be a grower and own the store at the same time when it comes to the recreational market. Are they doing something like that there too? Uh, no, not really. You can be vertically integrated <coughs> here in Michigan. Nice. Um, so you can have a grower, a processor, uh, a dispensary, um, all together. Um, you know, I would probably advise maybe not holding all three types in the same entity for some legal reasons, but you know, you can basically have them all together and be completely vertically integrated. You can't, though, if you held any of those licenses, also hold uh, a testing license, which is the the license that kind of tests all the products and make sure it passes our kind of safety testing measures. And then the transport license, which is, you know, how you got to get product from point A to point B. Do you affiliate all these entities then when you said that? So like you, when you're going to be advising a vertical integration of a client over time, for example, would you say we should start a new corporation or a new LLC for this particular venture? A lot of times we do. Um, and a lot of it is just kind of the, you know, not putting all your eggs in one basket. Um, as, as an attorney, that's usually something you want to advise your client. Um, we, you know, with each new entity, you got to pay a $6,000 application fee. Mm-hmm. So, you know, sometimes people don't want to pay that. Uh, but at the very least, we always tell people to make sure that their dispensary is in a separate entity. And that entity is separate from the cultivation and the processing. And there's a lot of kind of accounting and uh, tax reasons for that. Oh. Because the processing and the growing, right, then, because you get into the two different types of tax treatments, depending on what type of cash flow it came from. Yeah, usually it's, you know, it's okay to put the cultivation and the processing together, but the dispensaries you want to keep completely separate. And a lot of times we'll have them have different tax statuses. A lot of times a lot of the dispensaries have a C-corp tax status, and then the grow and the processes have a S-corp. Do you do that out of also protections in case, say, the feds get a hair up their ass and start raiding farms or something one day, you know, would that help them separate like the, the, the storefront versus the, uh, uh, the grow? Um, not sure. I understand the question. So like here in Washington, uh, we still have people being raided. Uh, you know, even though we're a recreational legal state, uh, you know, uh, some people have too many plants or whatever. Um, but say if I was a business and, they took my plants uh, and I have a storefront because when I was medical, it used to be vertically integrated. That mm-hmm. was all in one. And uh, some of those people got raided. And then, so they had no products, you know, for however long, but they kept the storefront 
is that like a protection there too when you keep the two different LLCs or I mean I guess yeah. so and one of the other reasons we do it is because if you have one of a problem with one of your licenses you don't want it to kind of infect your other licenses so if you hold all those licenses kind of together in one company and there's an action for you know failing to comply with the law against that one license then you know all your licenses held by that company kind of get put at risk so if you have the licenses and different entities you know then that that's their property so not yours because yeah. corporate corporations own their own property so this is their right it's not their right and then they just have some affiliation and overlapping and ownership yeah yeah overlapping or sometimes it's almost you know one to one it's yeah. the exact same it's just you know they keep well perhaps like separate. you know with the craft grows uh, I could see the craft grows. We kick, uh, we kick some equity kickers to like, you know, get some of the best talent to be your master grower. Right. So it's like, yeah. all right, well, cause a master grower doesn't need to be on a dispensary application. You know? Uh, yeah, that's cool. I just, you know, as we we're talking earlier uh, and how people just don't understand the need for a can of business lawyer, you know, a lot of times it's hard for them to comprehend that, you know, we're at a state now. It's like, if I want a liquor store, I'd probably have a lawyer, you know, uh, represent me or if i ran a toy store um you know, business. Business yeah you're complicated i mean like you shouldn't people go to school and major in the stuff i mean it's 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 a thing yeah, yeah. It, it's it's a highly regulated industry and if you're in a highly regulated industry you're either gonna need to be the expert yourself and then you know you need to make sure you put 10 20 hours a week aside to you know stay up to date on everything which a lot of people don't want to do or you need to hire someone who will. Um, and, you know, that's where we come in. And, you know, my background, a lot of what I was doing before cannabis business was corporate healthcare, where it's the same sort of thing, where it's a very highly regulated industry. It's, it's the same, but it's a different because like on, in healthcare, right, the feds are on top here, are the states on the top. So. I mean, healthcare is extremely overregulated or heavily regulated, but a lot of the laws arise from a federal guidance as opposed to a federal prohibition. Yeah, yeah. So you're right in that. You know, with the uh, with healthcare, it was all about you know a few kind of federal statutes like the anti-kickback uh, right act and Stark and all that fun stuff. Um, and it, with cannabis, it's almost like we don't it, we almost ignore federal law. I mean, we don't but in a way we do. Yeah, you uh, ignore it to the extent, like with the banking, you're like, don't ignore this particular aspect. So your bank should set those SARs and, and you should operate like in, in ways that you are going to be compliant in state law. So you're not, you know, asking for federal intervention. But the only thing you're really trying to do is just not poke the beast. Yeah, I mean, because there's really no, you know, federal cannabis laws we worry about too much. I mean, there's the Controlled Substances Act, but that kind of just kind of is what it is. And uh, at least with the medical, there's some protections with like the Aurora Bacafar right. amendment. But, you know, with REC, we're going off some rescinded guidance letters. Um, and that's so we don't really have a lot of protection on the federal level, but we just kind of do what we can and, you know, know that with the current political climate, we don't think we're going to get into trouble as long as we're state law compliant. Right. Yeah, that, that's a big one, state law. In, in, in the business side of things, uh, uh, Tom, uh, you'll laugh at my favorite case. I like to point out with Paul Stanford. Mm -hmm. are, you, are you familiar with that one, Scott? 
Uh, well, I, I'm very bad with case names. Though, oh, sometimes when you start explaining the case, I'll be like, oh, yeah, that one. Yeah, well, this gentleman, he owned a THCF clinics in, in Oregon, and he made a lot of money at the clinics. I mean, this is kind of auxiliary part of cannabis, right? They were getting prescriptions for uh, cannabis use. Uh, he made a big network, made a lot of money. But then uh, he signed a contract with an Israeli company uh, based out of Canada. Uh, they they took over his company. They they rid him off of the out of the company. He's no longer allowed to, you know, he doesn't make any revenue from it. And they almost uh, sued him on using his own name because he's a pretty large cannabis activist in Oregon. Uh, my thinking is if he had a better lawyer to go over the contract that in the business wise, I mean, the protections that you guys, that's what you guys offer is protections with any sort of negotiation contract. Yeah. I mean, with, you know, contracts, one of the jobs is making sure there's no surprises. Right. And then, you know, another part of it is kind of thinking through all the different scenarios of how this could play out and making sure we're protected with respect to each scenario, because a lot of these contracts will have buyout clauses. And a lot of times, you know, we can't get out of them. And it's just uh, the investor wants a buyout clause or the, the company wants a buyout clause. And that's just non-negotiable. But there's still ways to kind of soften the impact and, you know, protect people, especially, you know, in a situation where, you know, he can't even use his name, um, which yeah. I would assume arise because he used his name in the practice and he signed over all the IP. But even then, you know, you probably want to carve out so you can use your own name. Um, and it may seem silly to, to think about, but a lot of, you know, what we do is looking at these weird worst case scenarios and making sure if the worst happens, we're not you know, out of luck. What do you see in like the cannabis industry that is the the most pressing contract issue that your clients aren't addressing? The most pressing contract issue. Um, oh, that's a tough question. Well, what do they, what do they often, what do you, what's one of the things you often fix? Like what's one of the things they typically overlook? Um, I can tell you on the real estate, um, generally it's, you know, making sure we're protected if we don't get a license. Because a lot of how we do it is, you know, some people think, oh, I got to buy a property and then apply for a municipal license. Mm -hmm. And um, and that's just kind of like, you know, it kind of makes sense when you think about it. But that's also not how we do it and not how we would ever advise anyone to do it. You know, we put the property under contract, then apply. And then if we get the license then we close. And that's something where people new to the industry, they're just like, I don't think you can do that. And it's like, no, we, you can do that. We do that like every single week. Um, and that's one of those things where, you know, maybe people don't think of it, but I don't think they need to do it. Do they need to do that? Cause for example, in Illinois a dispensary license, you have six months to get that contract for the real estate, even the signed lease. Let's say you're not going to buy the real estate but it's different for the cultivation. Does Michigan require you to have a physical location for your dispensary in your application? So there's kind of three parts to the application and two of them you do. Um, so there's two parts to the state application and then more important than that, because it's generally the more limiting factor is the municipal application. Hmm. And the municipalities almost across the board require you to have a specific property, but that doesn't necessarily mean you have to buy it. So, you know, we generally just put it under contract 
make the PA contingent upon getting the license. And then when we get the license, we close on it. And if we don't, maybe we're out some, you know, deposit money, but at least we're not stuck with the property fully paid off that we have no idea what to do with. This is for, for both of you guys. Uh, I know it's been an issue in California and it's been a big issue out here in Washington about moratoriums. Is there anything that you guys are doing for protections on that? Our industry is too new. So there's no moratorium. Well, but, they're going to come though. If say like you get your license, well, like in 10 20. years, maybe like, you know, if they have a thousand different licenses in the state and they just aren't issuing anymore, is that what you mean by moratorium? Well, here we have uh, cities. I know I've seen it in California too, where the city of say Seattle says, you know what? We're tired of weed. Let's uh, we're going to have a moratorium city council votes, no more weed shops in our area. And then you've already rented a property that you're, you, you've already put listed on your license application that you're going to use. And now you can't, you can't do business out of there because there's a moratorium. We do have moratoriums on the municipal level um, quite a bit, but then that kind of goes back to that structure I was talking about before where, you know, if you're mid application and they, you know, say we're not issuing anymore, at least in that case, you're not stuck with that property mm -hmm. um, because, you know, there are moratoriums, um, you know, the city I live in right now, Royal Oak, there's currently a moratorium. Um, it's probably going to be lifted uh, pretty soon because they, they did it to give themselves time to figure things out before they kind of pass a municipal ordinance on marijuana. Mm -hmm. But, you know, there's places like Detroit where they say, you know, we're capping it at 75 standalone provisioning centers. And if you're not one of those 75, you can't get one. Yeah. Illinois is that. If you're not one of these, you don't get it. But then the municipalities, we don't have that moratorium. We have opt in, opt out. So more like a binary yes, no. And some municipalities are like not, not in our backyard and they aren't passing it. But other ones, my city said, sure, we will maximum tax. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I did notice that in the Illinois statute, you guys have a municipal tax potentially on top of, you know, the already, I would say somewhat burdensome tax scheme. I, I, yeah, $100 eight is what I'm envisioning. I mean, <laughs> I was thinking 90, but you might be right. I mean, we'll see, but $100 an eighth. I mean, thinking back to college 20 years ago, the highest price I paid for an eighth was 60 bucks. And yeah, it was dank. It might've been like bubble gum or something, but um, now I'm paying 59 and the weed is way better. So no, there hasn't been any weed inflation yet. No, no. In Michigan, I feel like there's been some deflation, um, you know, since we passed our first medical law in like 2008, 2009. Um, all of a sudden you saw the quality go up and the prices drop, which is nice. a good thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so, you, so you're a Detroiter, Scott? Is that where you're from? Yeah, the Detroit area. I grew up, grew up here and um, my office is downtown Detroit and then I live in Metro Detroit. I just think that helps with your guys, with your ability to stay more connected with the laws in your state, you know, being from that area, uh, you know, the networks. Yeah. Like if I'm not practicing in Michigan, I know nothing of their medical marijuana law or their adult use fra uh, legislative fabric. And then like talking to Scott, I'm like, nope, they do not do that here. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. Well, you're just starting to expand to Florida too now. So, I mean, I can imagine each time there's a different set of rules you got to learn, a different uh, parameter. Yeah. yeah, I mean, uh, not Florida, but another state that uh, I think Tom and I agreed not to talk about. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's you know, it's kind of overwhelming when you're in a new state and all of a sudden, you know, you have a crash course and it's 600 pages of 
you know, statutes that you're going to have to really know. Right. And that's um, that can be, you know, very burdensome and will make for some really boring weekends. Yeah. Well, come on. I mean, think about drafting all those corporate documents and understanding how they all fit together and work. Those can be some very boring weekends also. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I don't think there's anything more boring than reading an incredibly dry 600 page statute. I feel like that's, that's the worst. That would be bad. The stat, you know, some of those more complex agreements, they kind of get interesting because they're all so intertwined with each other. And right now there's more kind of hands-on-ness to it. But when it's just kind of dry reading, it just puts me to sleep. So Scott, do you help with applications? Do you help with that process at all? Yeah, yeah, our firm um, does quite a bit on the state and municipal level here in Michigan. We've had a lot of success on both levels. Um, you know, the state level is really not all that tough. Um, so you don't have a 60 page security uh, section? Like uh, well, we've done some municipal applications that are kind of merit based the way Illinois is. And we've, oh. you know, we've had 20 page security sections with, uh, and then like attachments for, you know, spec sheets of the different security equipment we're going to use. But it kind of just depends because if it's not a, a merit based application and we're not getting scored on it and ranked on it, then generally we're not going to provide all that level of detail because each, each thing we provide is a commitment we make. That's and right. And if we don't, if we can get away with not making commitments, you didn't we're not make commitments. commitments. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like yeah. Uh, there's, you know, the state part two, that's kind of the second step of the state. And, you know, they ask you for a record keeping plan, a security plan, all these plans. And, uh, you know, we've seen some other attorneys plans and they're pretty thick. And we're just like, why are you doing this? Because our when we do them, like we, it's like almost a game for us where we try to commit to as little as possible while still getting approved, knowing that oh, yeah. if we need to tweak it, they'll always allow us to tweak it. But we're not going to go ahead and submit a 10 page security plan because we're inevitably going to be committing ourselves to things we may not want to do now. In the oh, that is such a luxury because like if I would you, the advice that you give to a client as to whether or not they're in. Royal Oak or in Peoria, Illinois, uh, is fundamentally different because I'd say like you have to go over and above because if that other guy makes that promise, that's a higher quality application. You're going to get a higher score. You're out. And so like you can't under promise like that and then be held to a lower standard. But that's that's very important. And the distinction is the same that you made there. So in Michigan, it's still conditional promises on the application. So your application becomes a governing document for your business. Mm. Yeah. And, and the state and the municipal level, I think the municipal level, that's where, you know, we have a lot of kind of merit based municipalities. And then it's kind of like Illinois, where we almost need to commit ourselves to a bunch of things so we can get enough points to actually get one of these licenses. It's just that we also have to be careful that we got to commit ourselves to things that we're actually able to do. That's funny that you, the comparison as the legality goes uh, in tech, because that's what I do. I work in tech. Uh, when you get accredited as a lab, uh, there's a big checklist. And if you say yes to any part of that checklist, you have to prove that you can do that. You have to perform that function. Uh, so if you just say no to a lot of stuff and just perform the bare minimum, you're good to go. You get your certification, your A2LA accreditation, and now you're you're an official lab. You know, yeah, it really depends on the situation. You know, you know, we 
unless we need to, we'll avoid making those commitments, but you yeah. know, sometimes we need to. Hmm. Yeah, it makes solid sense. Corporate flexibility, it's what it's about, you know, and protection. Well, that's the important part about the, the cannabis business lawyer side of things. You know, uh, people might gaff at it. Uh, I was, I was, so what was the last thing that uh, we're talking about? Um, what was the last podcast, I think, where I was talking about how lawyers and policymakers are now the rock stars of cannabis uh, because it's all shit that nobody else wants to do. Because yeah. that's fine. I'll be over here smoking this weed, listening to that music. You good luck on that uh, 600 pages of statute. God bless you, sir. Yeah, I mean, we'll still want it for free. I mean, we have a lot of clients who are like, oh, I wish you had my job. I had your job. And I was like, do you? I see what you do. And you you know what I do. Which one's more fun? Yeah. Well, Scott, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, where can we find you, follow you, check out Scott Roberts Law? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, www.scottrobertslaw.com. Um, our office number is 248-234-4060. And uh, feel free to check us out online. And then also, you know, you can if you're in Michigan or looking to start a small Michigan business and get into the cannabis industry, we encourage people to check out marijuanamicrobusinesses.com, which is a, a partnership I formed with some other service providers to focus on kind of the smaller, newer entrance to the market. Nice. Awesome. And Nikki, where can we find you? I'll be here next Wednesday. <laughs> All right. Tom? <laughs> Uh, next week, I'm going to go to Bob Karp's. Um, he's giving a, with Reliance Compliance, they're giving a, a, a seminar and they're going to go over the Illinois application or what they believe the Illinois application is going to entail. So I'm going to sit in on that and then use that knowledge to help my clients get their applications done correctly. Uh, and so I'll probably be remote next week, but we were almost remote today with this internet surge we had. Awesome. Yep. Well, guys, thanks for tuning in. As always, like and subscribe for more cannabis legalization news. Tune in next Wednesday. Oh.